Well, good morning. Um, so yeah, we have all sprung forward. I sprang forward last night. I think I actually pulled a muscle when that happened, <laughs> right about there. Uh, really connected to my iPhone, so at 2.30 when it just felt it right there. Uh, hey, you get old, that happens, you know. Um, we're going to be in Romans 5 today, so if you have your Bibles with you, why don't you open to Romans 5. <clears throat> you know, I may have used this painting before. I've been uh, uh, privileged to teach here on and off for many years, so. but I still love it. It is an icon, a Russian icon. Uh, several hundred years old, painted by the um, artist Rublev, and it's called the Icon of the Holy Trinity. And um, scholars think that it was probably um, brought out of the church, it kind of uh, um, uh, part, became part of liturgical services around Pentecost, which you know from Acts 2 is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Um, after the ascension of Christ and his, his resurrection. Um, and, that, you know, if we were kind of in a classroom, I'd have us go through the exercise of, uh, okay, which person do you think is which in the Trinity here? And we'd have some fun kind of unpacking the clues. Uh, but I'll just tell you. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> it, it, I'll just tell you what the consensus is, the scholarly consensus. Um, in the middle, we have Jesus Christ, and most people identify uh, Jesus as the middle figure because he is, has the, um, the kind of, uh, it's the colors aren't great on this, uh, on any screen, but um, has kind of the purplish uh, red robe, which uh, signals both uh, certainly his incarnation, his coming to earth, that's kind of the the earthy colors, as well as the purplish, which is the, uh, you know, um, the color of royalty, uh, of kingship. And um, uh, you can't see his uh, fingers probably from very far back, but he's got two, uh, these two out here. And uh, probably for Rublev, it was the, uh, I think it was in the history of art, kind of in the history of Christological art, the uh, divinity and humanity of Christ. Um, and, of course, he is right behind the cup, uh, the communion cup. And he is the person we're looking right at. Uh, and, of course, Jesus was given us uh, to um, image God, to look right at, to know the Father. So that's, that's, that's what they think, who they think is in the middle. To his left, your right, would be the Holy Spirit, who uh, the green of the robe, the kind of verdant color, uh, suggests him because he, of course, is the giver of life. Uh, the Spirit hovered over the waters when God created the earth. Um, the Spirit gave resurrection life to Jesus in the tomb, and the Spirit is poured out in new birth on those. So the green represents the Spirit's um, role in the Trinity with us. He is the one who brings us life. Um, and then the Father is on the other side, um, probably signaled by the shimmering gold, the glory of, of, that, uh, of that robe. Um, and of course, they all have the blue, which links them as all as God, different members of the Trinity, but each in their roles, God the Father. 
And they think this was Pentecost because this is this moment when Jesus has ascended after the resurrection and um, is asking the Father, and you can see his head is kind of bent toward the Father. Um, and he is, in a sense, with his fingers pointing also to the Spirit. And uh, so it makes this a possible uh, moment when Jesus is saying, okay, I have um, died for uh, the sins of, of all those who would believe in me. I have atoned for them. And I have told them now that I, I'm, I'm leaving them, but it's good that I leave them because I can send the Spirit who can now be closer to them than even I could as their rabbi. I'm not leaving them as orphans. I've told them that I'm going to send the Spirit. And now, Father, this was kind of the plan. Now is the time. And so you can see Jesus kind of turning to the Father, let's send the Spirit. And you can almost see the Spirit's head bowed even a little more saying, I'm ready. I'm willing to go. And so you catch them right at this moment in which the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh as was prophesied in the Old Testament. And I, and I, and I like this because, um, and I've got to be careful because from t- watching TV, I want to point here, but it's actually pointing there. Okay, there we go. And so you'll catch me at various times forgetting. That, by the way, is the power of habituated practice. So that's another talk on spiritual formation. <laughs> Habit is key. Um, because we mostly run our life on automaticities anyway. Don't get me started. Um, Right. So the three... um, I love this because it kind of collects the three major doctrines of of our faith, of our biblical faith. One is the doctrine of justification. As a result of Christ's death, all of our sins, all our resistance to God, past, even present, even future, all of the accusations that can be labeled against us as we are people who over and over say, have said no to God, even we still say no to God. All of the, all of the evidence that can be brought against us, God through the death of Christ and through his declaration that we are his by fiat, by just him saying it, um, has eliminated the hostility, the resistance, and how it counts. It doesn't mean that we're, of course, completely sanctified, but he's saying, I, am, I don't no longer take any of that into account. You are justified. So it's almost a, a judicial declaration that we're good. And as a result of that, Jesus says, God says, now we're going to send the Holy Spirit. And this is the doctrine of Regeneration. Because he says, not only are we good, but I am actually going to send my spirit inside you so that we are linked. So that what is in me or what is me is in you. And it's going to regenerate you and it's going to bond you to me. It's going to give you, and so that's where we talk about new birth. It's going to give you new life. So when, when many of you became Christians, you discovered that your affections had changed. You'd become a new creature. You were headed in a new direction. You may not have liked going to church before, but you especially if you're an adult convert and kind of register the change, now you wanted to go to church. You hadn't read the scriptures, now you wanted to read the scriptures. You hadn't really uh, enjoyed fellowship, now you wanted to fellowship. You didn't necessarily love reading the word, but you wanted to read the word. So your affections have changed. That's because the Holy Spirit came inside you. didn't make you perfect, but it's regenerated you and produced an affection for God because the Spirit's in you. So we see at this moment, again, the, the, the doctrine of regeneration about to happen here as the Spirit's poured out. And then, and then the doctrine of adoption. 
That not only are we good with God, not only is he sent a spirit, but we are now become part of this family. This is the happy family. Our parents love each other. And now he says, you're a part of our family. And so we're told in Romans 8, in fact, last time I spoke here, Romans 8, that the spirit has been sent into us, regeneration, so that we would cry what? Abba, Father, adoption. So it turns out the court that we thought was a criminal court is an adoption court. It's an adoption court. And we are adopted in the family. I mean, the, you, you, you know, even in Ezekiel, so you've run by uh, chapter 11, verses 19 and 20. I will give them an undivided heart. I will put my spirit within them, Ezekiel says. Ezekiel prophesies this moment that's represented in the Rublev icon. I will put my spirit within them, justified, regenerated, adopted. Just like that. And some, if some of you aren't, uh, don't consider yourself a Christian this morning, if you want to know what the gospel is, that's the gospel. <laughs> that God is offering peace with him, life with him, a new family, if we would say yes. And this shouldn't amaze you because, you know, this happens even at City Hall, <laughs> right? Two people show up at a desk that has marriage... Well, I don't know what it has, but it says something up there. It tells you to go there to get married. <laughs> and, you, and, you, and they're offering you a new identity. They're offering you a new status. All you'd have to say is, I do, to each other and to them. And then suddenly, many things change. You have a new identity. You say, the IRS looks at you not the same anymore. It affects how they, how they collect taxes from you. It affects how they, um, your, your kind of health and disability benefits for spouses. It affects your housing assistance. It affects your um, even consumer rates. <laughs> you get family rates now on things. Your new identity, new status, just by someone saying so, they call it a speech act. They say something and everything changes in the system. Strange. Well, how much more so when God says, I'm giving you a new identity? (laughs) I'm going to now establish a new fact of the universe by you accepting this offer. He has given us the right for all who believe to become a new thing, the children of God. And how much more is that a deeper and more lasting identity. So we have direct access to the king of the universe. Verse 2 in in Romans 5 here, it says, having been justified by faith, we now stand in the grace of God. We can stand before God in ways that first century folks could never imagine standing before Caesar. We have peace with him, and we've obtained this access by faith into this grace. And this changes everything. We now have an inheritance that would have been just given to Jesus. We will always have hope. We will always have comfort. We will always have meaning. All things can be redeemed. We will one day become beautiful in ways that God is beautiful. We will have a family. We will have peace available to us. We will always have God. We will always have communion with God. And so everything changes at this moment in our lives. And, you know, Paul makes, in other places, makes this. (laughs) There it is again. Um, 
Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. There we go. Wait for it. There we are. Um, he makes this amazing claim. For we have died through this justification, regeneration, adoption. We have died with Christ and our lives are hidden with him. They're hidden with him. And even more so, he has raised us with Christ and we are seated with him in the heavenly realms. And I just want you to, I want us to for a moment to just kind of stick with that language. Now, one could take it metaphorically, that our lives are hidden with God. So kind of like, well, yeah, in the mind of God, we are as if hidden with him now. We're not really hidden with him now because we're here. But no, in the mind of God, we're, there's a place for us with him. So you could take it metaphorically. Uh, we're not really seated with him in the heavenly places, but it's as if we're seated with him in the heavenly places. We might as well be seated with him in the heavenly places. I mean, he's got a place for us. But, you know, there's some theologians who would say, no, actually, um, you are hidden with God right now. You are actually now seated with him. There is part of your spirit that is with him. There is an already and not yet character. They call it inaugurated eschatology, which means it's begun. You already have a part of your spirit with him. It's like as if I talk into my cell phone, and my voice is in my cell phone, but it's also in your cell phone. I am in two places. My voice is in two places. So some theologians would say, no, these, you are in two places right now. Just like Jesus can be with God and he can be with us, we are not omnipresent like God is. We can't be all places. But because of what he has done by regenerating and adopting us, we are actually with him. As you are sitting here. And this is going to become important because in a moment we're going to talk about suffering. And where is God when we're suffering? And where are we when we're suffering? But I've asked Scott to kind of just let us pause for a moment and to play a chorus and to sing it along maybe a couple times. And then I'm going to guide you in a little prayer just because I want us to anchor in this. And then he'll close by helping us sing it again. But I just want us to settle into this notion that our lives in one sense or another are hidden with God because of what he's done. Oh, Jesus, I will hide in you bore my condemnation I find my refuge in your wounds for there I find salvation sing that oh Jesus I will hide in you who bore my condemnation I find my refuge in there I find salvation. Just for a moment now, um, present yourself to God. Uh, you might begin just by being aware that you're here in this room. Um, you hear Scott's piano playing. You're alongside someone maybe you came with. You're with the body of Christ in this room. You can almost feel their presence with your eyes closed. It'd feel very different if you were sitting in this room alone. And now I want you to add to your awareness the fact that the Holy Spirit is actually in the room. 
He's actually with us. I'm not asking you to have a spiritual experience or an emotional experience. I just want you to open to the truth. That the Holy Spirit has been sent. We are adopted. This is something that will never be taken away from you. So open for a moment. Present yourself. And in fact, you might pick a word that is your word for God, something among the biblical choices. God, Jesus, Spirit, Savior, Lord, Abba, love. And as you settle in, just kind of inhaling deeply and exhaling in your heart, just speak that name a few times. This is nothing magical. It's just simply presenting yourself to God. Take a moment and inhale on the exhale, just Abba. into this relationship right now um, an area of difficulty in your life. Some suffering or what we call a trial. There's always something, isn't there? There's always something. Stay with God. Stay in His presence. But bring into could be uh, illness, could be um, struggles at work, could be uh, relational family stuff could be the suffering of another person who's dear to you. Um, What would that be this morning for you? Just um, present that to God for a moment. is that you are hidden with Christ. You are seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms. That's real. You're held. You are secure. Can you sit in both these places at once? upon this struggle of yours what words of encouragement 
as you sit with God do you have for yourself or um, for the person for whom uh, on behalf whose behalf you suffer what would you say to them Father, thank you that we have been justified by faith. We have been regenerated by your spirit. We've been adopted. We have peace with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, we have access all the time by faith into a grace in which we sit or stand or lie down. And we rejoice in this hope, this present and future hope, which you call the glory of God. This is the glory of God thank you that this is true and that's what just amen means so true and so in jesus name we pray amen oh jesus i will hide in you for my condemnation i find my refuge in find salvation Oh Jesus I will hide in you for my condemnation I find my refuge in your bones Oh there I find salvation Amen. Well, this is all good news, Romans 5, 1 and 2. But Paul knows his audience, and he knows that they suffer. These are first century Christians. And in the first century, there were many things that were always a threat. Disease. Plagues would just run through villages. Um, Exploitation. The rich could pretty much do whatever they wanted to the poor. Um, scarcity of things that we take for granted. Food, clean water, it's always a threat. Um, And so naturally, after all this good news, it's a summary of kind of the first four chapters of Romans, his audience would say, well, that's great, Paul, but what does suffering have to do with all of this? What do we do with all of this that we experience, of the insecurity, the instability? You've spoken that we have peace with God, that we're enfolded. He'll go on to speak in Romans that we're generally adopted. And he knows he kind of has to say something. And he says it pretty quick. He says it in three verses. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take that. We're going to spread that out a little bit. But he knows he has to address the issue of suffering because it's major. I mean, it's not like they're walking outside and they go, oh, dead battery. You know, I mean, this is major, um, major stuff. And so the question is, Paul, what do we do with the reality of our suffering? And so I kind of want to walk us through a little bit of, of what Paul means by verses 3, 4, and 5. It's that more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why would we do that? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, 
And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. A very quick, um, a very quick word from Paul with a lot of important words. So I want to describe a little bit what I think um, we experience when we suffer, and I think this is common to humanity in any age. We are designed to seek the good, you and I. It's why we get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> what gets us out of bed is kind of certain goods that we hope to enjoy that day. We hope to enjoy uh, good relationships. We wake up, and if we have family that lives with us or roommates we like, we get out of bed to enjoy those relationships. Uh, we had to get out of bed to uh, go and hopefully do meaningful work. And if not meaningful work, at least work that gives us a paycheck. That's a good. Um, we get out of bed to, um, to, to exercise, to engage in certain pleasures of eating, um, to, to enjoy all the good things that the Father has given us. We get out of bed to um, experience beauty, to experience peace in our relationships with others. So we all have natural hopes. The person who's depressed can't get out of bed. The person who's clinically depressed. Because they just can't see the good anymore. They don't see the point. Well, that's not how it's supposed to be. We all are meant to desire goods. So we're kind of like existential sharks. You know, we're always looking for the good. Um, and that's, that's how it should be, kind of. You know, we're always moving toward the good. Uh, theologians and philosophers say we're teleological creatures. And that just means we're always, always headed toward a good. Now, the good may not always be a good good. But we're always headed toward a good. That's what's good. And what happens is our hearts, our, our loves and desires wrap around these goods. They wrap around them. They, they become accustomed to them. They become things we want. They, they grab onto them with varying degrees of intensity. I mean, a latte is a good good. In our heart, a little love and desire for the latte, a little love and desire. <laughs> ah, but health, wow, we wrap around that. Or a flourishing family, wow, mm, our love and desire just wraps around that. And that's good. St. Augustine has things called the order of loves, things that we should really, really wrap around. Of course, at the top being love of God. Somehow that makes a difference for everything. And a latte is down there somewhere <laughs> in the order of loves. So we are meant to head toward goods. We're meant to wrap our desires around these things. And here's what happens, though, when a trial comes into place. Suffering, or what we call a trial, comes in, and it, it kind of is like, it's like, it's like you know, the marine layer. I had some friends who went down to play at Torrey Pines golf the day before yesterday. Totally, totally socked in. They couldn't even see their chip shots, where those went. And, of course, they couldn't see the ocean view. All the good and beauty that is playing at Torrey Pines. I'm not a golfer. I'm just, you know, I've heard. Um, all the good and beauty of seeing the ocean, they couldn't see it. Well, that's what happens. A trial comes in. Now the good that I'm seeking, you know, I have a memory of it, but I can't. It's not even close enough now to grab. Now it's kind of in jeopardy. A trial comes in and makes us wonder, am I going to achieve that good? Is my family going to flourish? <clears throat> is this job going to be here in six months? Is this relationship going to be mended? You see, a trial comes in, and, and suddenly now, the good that we are seeking, that our hearts have wrapped around, our attachment, now it's up in the air. And we feel the joy that we would have felt as we imagined receiving it is now 
Now we can imagine grief. Oh, wow. Now we can imagine grief. What if I don't get this? This good that my heart has wrapped around. And we usually know how wrapped around it we are by anxiety. So anxiety is like a little barometer that tells us how dear a good this is to us. So Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. When a trial comes, we realize how much a treasure this is to us. And like I said before, it it maybe should be a real treasure. It may be a good good. I mean, there are good things to love, as I said before. Um, Health is a good good. Relationships are a good good. Meaningful work is a good good. And so what happens is a trial, wow, it kind of shows us our heart. It's like, wow, I really care about this. Now, some things, it may open up our heart in a trial, and we may go, oh, wow, Lord, you're showing me this, and I'm agonizing over it, but I'm not sure I should be. (laughs) Like, you know, in my case, you know, part of what I seek is is my ego. (laughs) I want to be universally approved. That's my kind of motto, universal approval, right? I want everyone to be happy with me all the time. I want everybody to love what I do. I want, in fact, I want to be the best. I want people to go, he's the best. And so a lot of the trials, the anxiety feels because I'm wrapped so tightly around my ego that when a trial comes and God shows me my treasure, I go, oh, Lord, I think I, think I need to hold this more loosely. And so it can be, trials can be a gift in that way. They show us our heart. Because you know what? Your heart drives your life. Your heart just drives your life. Why does Proverbs 4.23 say, Watch over your heart with all diligence. Know what's in there because from it, your life just flows for good or for ill. So a trial comes up. It shows us our, our loves. And it's a moment. It's good. We kind of have to rock back when we hit the wall of a trial and look like, Lord. And now we go through a process with God. This is kind of the first step is, Lord, is this a good good? Is health a good good? Yeah, that's a good good. So I'm going to keep moving, Lord, in this trial. I'm going to keep moving toward health. But we've kind of confirmed that with the Lord. Or is is meaningful work good? Well, yeah, I think that's a good good. So, Lord, even though there's this trial now, even though I can't say, I'm going to keep moving toward it. Now, other things we may say, wow, ego, not a good good. (laughs) So, Lord, I'm experiencing, this is a lot of unnecessary suffering. If If I would just die to myself, I could eliminate this unnecessary suffering. So in this first moment of trial, we kind of let God open our heart and have a peek inside to test us, to know what is in our heart. But if we find that it's a good good, well, it's like, okay, um, here we go. We're going to move into the cloud now. And here's where, you know, God has gifted us with practical reason, problem solving, a certain amount of natural fortitude. It's the ability to move into things and figure them out. Our kids are having problems. Well, we can maybe help figure it out. Maybe with the help of, of educators or, or therapists, we can help them figure it out. Or at work, things are, are not going as well as, as you know, the stability is not happening or something. We, we can now think, well, yeah, how can I strategize to do this better? How can I become a better employee, a more, a more helpful one, make a more meaningful contribution? Or in the areas of health. Well, health is a good good. So, so Lord, what, what doctors and what, what health wisdom can I follow? So we move into this. We use our practical reason, and that's a gift for all people. And that's a good. That's a good. Your, your reason, 
your strategy, your problem solving. God has said, this is a good good. There's a trial. Now move forward in what you've been given. Ah, but here's the problem. At some point, your problem solving won't solve the problem in some cases. In some cases, your practical reason will not be able to figure it out. I don't know how to solve this. In some reason, your, your, your kind of everything you do for your health is not fixing it. You know, you, as I look at on you, you look like competent and educated people who have probably been able to figure out a lot of things in your life and do well. But there will come times in our lives when for now we just can't make it happen. We can't fix it. And because we're competent and uh, educated people, this is a mystery to us. <laughs> it's like, what? I can't solve it. It's because you and I have an illusion of control. Thank you for the laughter. That should be funny to us if it's not too painful. We have an illusion that we can fix everything. And so we get to this point, we're moving through, and suddenly all of our natural resources that we normally use aren't fixing the problem. Okay, so what do we do then? Well, I'll tell you, there's a few temptations at this point. You know, one temptation is going to be, you know, I am going to figure this out. I am going to make this happen. I am going to break through this. This thing that is limiting me and my life. And, I'm gonna, and, and here's the key. I'm going to do whatever it takes. If I have to doctor the books a little bit, we'll doctor the books. If I have to yell at some people, I'll yell at some people. If I have to blame some people, I'll blame some people. If I have to manipulate things, I'll manipulate things. If I have to engage in fraud, I'll engage in fraud. If I have to engage in gossip, I'll engage in gossip. Now it's like, okay, you know, I am going to... The temptation is going to be to do whatever it takes and to then take us outside of God's good will for us. The things he said give us life. We are going to try to go around it. And deeds of the flesh will emerge. Some of you have seen perhaps Hacksaw Ridge. Anybody? Yeah. A um, lot of blood in this movie. Mel Gibson likes blood. So, you know, if you get queasy, don't rush out and see it. But it's the... Um, these jokes worked better in the first hour. Are you guys... I don't know what... It is so different. Same church, same speaker, same space, different people. Loosen up, please. I need a little something. Yeah, I don't know. You guys are feeling that loss of an hour. I know. So the story is the story of Desmond Doss, uh, who, if you don't, haven't seen the film, uh, this, hopefully this won't be a spoiler, is, kind of sets it up at the beginning, but he is someone who, who's good, good. He feels like it's a good for him to join the World War II effort, because everybody in his town, all the men have done it. He wants to join in it. He wants to become a medic. Um, he is a Seventh-day Adventist, and this is a true story. Um, in fact, of course, it's a true story because there you see Truman pinning the medal on the original Desmond Doss. And in the lower right-hand corner, that's Andrew Garfield who plays the character. Medal of Honor uh, for Desmond Doss after World War II. Um, uh, so the problem is, as a, he has also has a particular belief as a Seventh-day Adventist. I don't think it is necessary to be a Seventh-day Adventist to believe this, but he interprets the command, Thou shalt not kill, as absolute. Thou shalt not kill in war. Where... Again, Christians disagree about the inter- disagree about the interpretation of that command, 
and uh, believe there is kind of a necessary uh, killing that can take place in war. Doss did not believe this. And so he would not train with a rifle. That was his principle. And he felt, he felt it was a biblical principle. I'm not going to weigh in on that. He felt it was a biblical principle. And that created a lot of problems for him. They wanted him, according to the story, they wanted him out. Because even medics needed to train with rifles to protect their fellow soldiers. And that makes a certain sense. And he would not do it. And so he had, he had, his obedience to the Lord actually increased his trial. Not only did he try to find a way around it outside his principles, he went through it. And that made it worse. That made it worse. But he said, you know, I'm going to go through this with God. How he understood that. I'm going to go through it with God. He did not go around. So our first temptation is going to be to go around outside what we believe God's will for us is. Second temptation, down on the lower right, is going to be despair. So some people are going to say, I'm going to go through this no matter what cost. I'm going to go around. Other people say, I despair of this. (laughs) I'm not even going to try. And even though it's a good good, they're like, I give up. You know, some people lose their faith in trials. It happens. The trial is such, they're like, where's God? How is this going to work out? This shouldn't be happening to me. Christianity must not be true. And so they, they despair. Well, that, that's, that's the second way you can go wrong. It's to despair that God will come. To despair that God will come at all. And the third temptation, when our resources have dried up, we can't get through, is worry. Is worry. You know what worry is? Worry is magical thinking. If I just stare at this, I can keep it out there. I'll just stare at it all the time. It'll be like a Star Trek tractor beam. If I just stare at it, I'll hold it out there, and it won't come any closer. Ladies and gentlemen, that is magical thinking. That's not true. Meanwhile, we're, anxiety is flushing out of us. We're staring at it. We're ignoring our callings. We're ignoring the people around us. We're not getting sleep. We're just worrying. We're staring at this thinking, and believe me, I know something about this. We're staring at it hoping that if I just stare at it, Jesus says, don't worry. Oh, that is a hard one. Because that's how we think we're going to hold this thing at bay. And that is magical thinking. So that is the third temptation. So what, in fact, do we do? When our resources are dried up, we're in the trial. It's a good good. How does the justification, regeneration, adoption of God, what is the relevance of this to how we move through suffering? Well... We need to cultivate an endurance. This is Paul in verse 3. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Now, I want to say a word about endurance because that could easily be misunderstood in kind of, if, I, if you will, pagan ways. Endurance sounds like, I, you know, I just need to gut it out. I just need to Nike it. Just do it. And, of course, there is a certain amount of effort in moving, keep moving toward the good, good. It does take a certain amount of fortitude. But that is not what Paul is talking about here. Because our resources will not be enough in these times. We will need God. And you know what we're going to need God to do? 
We're going to need God to create a way. <laughs> Lord, I can't, I've used all my resources. I can't figure this out. And I'm not willing to go around this in disobedience in some way. And so, Lord, I need you to create a way. I need a third option between disobedience and despair. You know what endurance is in the Christian life? It's waiting on God. It is not just the the gutty effort to bull through something. It is waiting on God. Lord, provide something. Well, that is hard. But there are many in this room who can attest that you have been in this place. In fact, I am speaking to some people who have been through so much suffering, you should be up here talking about it. You know what I mean. Sometimes the way that God has provided has not been the way you wanted him to provide. That's very, very hard. And I know the stories of some people in this room. But endurance is not just me getting out. It is me waiting, God, what is the way that you will provide? So it's not a toughness. There is effort involved. It is not just mere fortitude. You know what? It's supernatural fortitude. What makes the difference is I'm waiting and relying and depending on God. Lord, I need you. I need you to provide a way. Well, that's the first thing. That's the first way we endure. What is the second way we endure? We just move more deeply into God himself. It's not just that I need him to provide a way. I need him. See, we are, because of justification and adoption and regeneration, you and I are united with God. We are united with God, never to be separated. And guess what we get to do then? We get to commune with him. It is a just, it is a, these are doctrines not just for conversion. They are doctrines for life. We must seek God in this. And so you'll see these invitations in Scripture. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one does. Well, then go to the love of Christ. Go to it. Come to me, all who labor in a heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Go. Go to Jesus. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Wow, that is hard to do in a trial. Blessed is the man and woman who take refuge in him. This is not going to sound like a very satisfying prescription, but I'm going to tell you it's the only way. You need to gaze on Jesus. You need to gaze on the beauty and goodness and love of God. This is a time in suffering where you are going to probably need to spend more time in prayer. And it won't be the kind of prayer just like, Lord, create a way. That's one kind of prayer. The other kind of prayer is, Lord, I just need you. I need to be reminded that my life is hidden with you. That I am actually seated with you. I need to know that. And we need to press into him. Worship will become very important. Your friends who hold you and your faith even for you when your faith is running out, are going to be very important for you. You will need to gaze on Jesus. This is why Paul says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? It is his beauty, his power, and his goodness toward us. That is what we do while we wait. We let us more deeply gaze or contemplate his beauty, goodness, and power. That is his glory. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not just a future hope, but a present hope now. He is this now in the glory of God. And you know what happens as we do this? 
we actually share in God's glory. Now, this is funny because many of us think, well, I glorify God, which means I decrease and he increases. I decrease. Well, that, John the Baptist said, and that was kind of his role. John's role was, because John the Baptist was getting a lot of attention. Like, are you the Messiah? No. I have to decrease now because you guys think too much of me. This guy's the Messiah. So that, those were, that was St. John's thing. But we, we actually get to share in the glory of God, even in suffering. You know, just once... I would like to see a field goal kicker miss the winning field goal in the last three seconds and go like this. <laughs> right? They only go like this when they're glorified. And thanks, God. Just once, man. I, would, I will so use that as a teaching video. Please, just once. Because you know, there's something that's happening. As I begin to gaze on the glory of God, we're told here that God is shining uh, the, the light that um, shines out of darkness, right? This is the light of cre- at creation. The light that <laughs> originally created the world shines in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face. Remember I said gaze at Jesus? In the face of Jesus Christ. It's actually now shining in our hearts. In fact, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but someday we'll see face-to-face. And this face-to-face, though, can begin now. It's not a visual image. It is meant to be a phrase that means relational knowledge of who God is. And as we do this, this is what happens. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed now. As we gaze on Jesus in these times, we are being transformed. Why? Because we are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. We are getting, if you will, the kind of um, reflection of glory in our own lives. And this comes from the Spirit. You know, I was talking to the mother, uh, a mother whose daughter is dating a non-believer. And, um, and the daughter was saying to the mother, you know, he's, he's really a good guy. And, and he, apparently he is a really good guy. He is principled. And he respects her faith. And he's disciplined. He's, I hate to say this. He's probably better than a lot of Christian guys. From the description. In terms of character. And then, and then the girl, but then the girl said to her mother something interesting. She then said something about her dad. And her dad is a Christian. And she says, you know, my boyfriend tries really hard to be good. He has kind of good character. But then she said, and she was just kind of puzzling this out. She said, but, you know, it's different. Dad is good. (laughs) My boyfriend's trying hard to be good, but dad is good. Now, to the degree that that's true, that is the difference between character that we just try to form naturally, like my good intentions, my self-discipline. And self-discipline's good, and fortitude's good, but it's natural, (laughs) It is us trying to be, and it's a certain kind of character. But when someone has had to rest in God, to seek God's face, to develop the patience, to seek the peace, to find a measure of love and joy and stability, they become like God. In the sense, they develop the fruits of spirit. That is an entirely different sense of character when Paul uses here. He says... Endurance produces character. Not because someone's gotten tough, 
Not because someone's gutting it out. Not because someone's got discipline. Because they have learned to rest in God. To enjoy his love, his peace, his patience. And they have been changing into the glory of God. Because that is what is glorious about God. Love, joy, peace, patience. They are becoming like him. And that is a different kind of character. That is supernatural character. And you feel it. It is a kind of health. (laughs) And though your body is wasting away, says Paul, your inner man is renewing, your inner woman is renewing, and you are now sharing in the glory of God. And this is the good good. In fact, it is the good good. Even though we are seeking and should seek certain good goods in our lives, frankly, it's true that those are uncertain. (laughs) I don't know if I'm going to get. I can't guarantee through my own resources I'm going to get what I want. Ah, is there a good then higher than that no matter what happens? Yeah, it's called the glory of God. It is the experience of God's glory in communion with him and the fact that, as Romans 8, 28 said, all things are working together for my good, and here's what Paul means, to be formed in the image of Christ. The great good that is still possible when the good goods we seek may not be achieved is that we are becoming closer to the glory of God, both in relationship to him and in our person. And let me tell you, this is a great gift to the people around you. To have someone in the life who reflects the glory of God. Who finds a measure of peace and hope in what are often very difficult situations. And so I need to stop. Paul's last word is this in Romans, at least in our passage. That this love of God has been poured out already. And this brings us back to justification, regeneration, adopted. It's already been poured out. And it will not disappoint. Other things will disappoint. We will not always get the goods we seek. But the love of God will not disappoint. Ultimately, he holds us. Ultimately, he has us. Through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us, and who can never be taken away. Now I know I'm talking to three groups of people this morning. Again, there are some of you who have been down a road of suffering. I can't imagine. Although I have had some suffering. Um, and you, again, you are just sitting there going, "Well, yeah, this is true." <laughs> but you know it. You know it in a thick way. Some of you. Things are going okay. Right now it is just dead batteries and, you know, cockroaches. Um, and so, you know, you just kind of archive this. You know, Romans 5, 1 to 5, just kind of archive it. You're going to need it, you know. And there are some of you who are in it right now. You are in it. And you're confused. What's happening? Well, this is what's happening. <laughs> this is what's happening. God is drawing you more deeply in. He's wanting to show you himself. He wants to give you away. It may not be the way you want, but he will give you away. Um, and so what I want to say to all of you and to myself is, it's good to seek the good goods. 
Let them open up and show you what the treasures are in your heart. Let God confirm that they're good goods. Release what is not a good that you should be seeking, that you're just wrapped around and it's not. It's something you receive from the world. And then go ahead and use your practical reason, your problem-solving ability, your resources. Go ahead and move into that. Don't despair that good will ever come. Don't despair. And when you've dried up your resources and there's nothing else you can do and it still persists, don't go around. (laughs) Wait for God's way. And get other people to help pray for God's way for you. And while you wait for that, press into Jesus, gaze on him. This is a whole other talk. How do we gaze on Jesus? But, you know, we kind of did that to open a little bit. We just need to gaze on the glory of God. And as you do that, let the glory of God be shed abroad in your heart. Let the image of Christ be formed in you, which is the great good to which we've been called. That is our calling, to let Jesus be formed in us. So let me pray for you. Well, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for those saints who have gone before us who have shown us how to suffer. And the, some of those saints are in this room. And I pray that you're comforting them now. And Lord, I pray for those who are in the midst of things. that you would show them they are still held, they are still loved. And while they wait for the goods that they seek and wait for your way, may you reveal yourself to them in a way that they see your glory. They just see you more clearly and that that scene transforms them. And that even though trials swirl around them, they are encouraged. They even in a sense, grow in their faith. They feel the glory of God pulsing through their bodies. Um, And we thank you for their endurance, their waiting on you, because it is a great gift for those of us who want to know how to do it, for our children who want to know how to do it, for our brothers and sisters of the body of Christ who want to do it. So we thank you um, that you love us and will never leave us. Jesus name amen